I keep waiting in uh, in some professional sport, and, and I know it's going to have to happen at some point eventually when they're going to go to triple digits on the jerseys, oh, right? Man. Because at some point, somebody's <laughs> going to run out of jersey numbers. Like, you know, you can only recycle the numbers. Will it happen in our lifetime? That's what I want to know. I hope not. I was wondering, Jay, is there, is there a rule that you can't have triple figures on a jersey? Such a great question. <laughs> it's buried on page 911 of the CBA. I have no idea. Um, uh, wait, by the way, speaking of that, just uh, total, again, this is never on our agenda. We just always riff right off the top. But um, what do you make of the NFL changing their policy and allowing these different numbers now? You know, like a quarterback can be number 82, where that used to be a wide receiver. So what, what do you make of all that? Uh, well, it sells more jerseys, right? I mean, look at the Rams. I think everybody in the Rams and the uh, – Offensive and defensive backfield change their numbers, so um, I think it's great. I think it's it. Um, I think they ran out of numbers, John. I think that's the problem is that you have so many numbers and there's retirement numbers and stuff like that. I have no problem with it. I have no problem with a guy like Jalen Ramsey switching from five, from twenty to five. Uh, makes it a little bit more difficult at the beginning of the season, uh, but I kind of think it's cool. What about you? Um, I, I'm not a real fan of it. Like, I'm I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Mm-hmm. But if I would have had a vote at the ta- around the table that day, I would have voted against it. Uh, we need to find something that you're adamantly against, ODB, because like the advertisements on the jerseys, you're like, eh. changing of the jersey numbers, yeah, <laughs> different colors, different uniforms, third jerseys. Eh. I need I need to find I like, something that you are adamantly opposed to. I like change, John. I guess that's it. I guess I'm more flexible than the average cat, and that's why I'm like, okay, let's. Okay, I, I can't and. and you make a great point, Joe. I guess we've been know each other way too long. Is that I'm, I'm not vehemently opposed to to much in life in general, so I go with the flow. But uh, I think of all people, either you or PJ could probably find something that I'd be vehemently opposed to. Other than that, I don't think there's anybody out there. Maybe Pat Yoda, but uh, you three might find something. But yeah, I just kind of go <laughs> with the flow. <laughs> All right, we haven't had Panyota on the program for a while, so I'm gonna have we're gonna have to book him soon, yeah. and then I'm gonna have to ask him if he knows of anything that you are vehemently um, against. Uh, so we'll we'll get into that. But hey, DB, uh, for today's program, we have a fantastic yeah. guest lined up. I have been working for nearly a month to try to uh, come up with a time that works for everybody, and uh, his name is Dante Abercrombie, yeah. and he was one of two guys that was invited. They were both invited to kind of be embedded with the Arizona Coyotes recently during their development camp. 
and as part of their like diversity and inclusion program sure. and whatnot, fascinating uh, individual, at least what I've been able to do some research on him. But I was really excited from the very beginning. You might have remembered I was tweeting yeah. about this when the Coyotes announced it. I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is really interesting um, because it's such it, it, it just it's so much deeper than just hiring somebody or, you know, having a night to celebrate something mm -hmm. like they really were putting their money where their mouth was or is to to do something like this, to, to expose themselves and, and to allow people to be to be part of their club, mm -hmm. to be in the room, to, to be part of the process and to be included at a development camp and, and be around their players and just be exposed to all that. Uh, I'm just fascinated by it. And so uh, I can't wait to talk to him and ask him a bunch of questions before we get to that, though, Dennis. Let's first, of course, I know everybody's waiting with bated breath. They want to know the name of the studio <laughs> today. We are coming to you live in Los Angeles from the Don McLean uh, studio. Now, DB, does that name mean anything to you? Isn't that the guy who sang American Pie, John? <laughs> Well, it's a different Don oh, McLean. This okay. is uh, Don McLean. He of the hockey skates of the former L.A. Kings uh, member. <laughs> and, you know, this is timely because we are recording this on Thursday. Frozen Fury is tonight. And we're going to talk about Frozen Fury in the third period, Dennis. Don McLean is tied to the Frozen Fury, the history of Frozen Fury, because the very first one, the first official one, I know hardcore fans love to debate. Of course. Well, isn't the first Frozen Fury the game that happened in 91? No, that's the Bruce McNall Caesar's Palace right, outdoor right. game. That's really more of the first winter classic than anything Great else. Point. That's what it, it just is, wasn't right. winter. It was uh, exactly. you know 118 degrees <laughs> in, in, in Vegas. But um, so that wasn't really the first Frozen Fury. Frozen Fury was the brainchild of the LA Kings and the Colorado Avalanche who came together. And actually, Cheeseman and and uh, uh, Chris McGowan were involved, if I remember correctly, in bringing that thing together in, in the 90s. But uh, Don McLean, how he ties to all of this is that he scored the game-winning goal of the very first Frozen Fury. So there you go. Don McLean, he is going to get the name of the studio today. And, Dennis, we have a lot of uh, Frozen Fury sort of trivia and information that I would like to, uh, to cover off on here in the first period before we bring in Dante. And then in the third period, maybe you and I can get back together and we can talk about um, roster moves sure. and what's going on with the, with the L.A. Kings right now. There have been some cuts. There have been some signings. Uh, I think you also have some some gambling statistics that you can share with us or some odds and whatnot. Uh, Don McLean, though, by the way, he was drafted in the second round, just to, to wrap up the thoughts on him. I didn't mention this. Uh, 1995, second-round draft pick of the L.A. Kings, 97-98. He did play 22 games for the Kings. He had a few cups of coffee along the way with some other clubs, played a couple games in Toronto, Columbus, uh, and uh, Detroit, and I think he ended his NHL career with the Phoenix Coyotes, believe it or not. Played less than 50 games in the NHL, but he'll always be remembered for that time back at at Frozen Fury and DB, um, Kings of the Podcast, former guest, a, a former guest on our program, scored the very first ever goal in Frozen Fury history. I've mentioned this before. Do you happen to remember who it is? Uh, I'll let you give the name, but uh, he is a legend with respect to Kings of the Podcast, John. So, so break it down for us. <laughs> It, he is not only a legend for Kings of the Podcast, he is a legend among L.A. Kings history as well. The greatest uh, uh, goal scorer of all time, Wayne Gretzky, was traded out of Los Angeles for a package of five players, including Craig Johnson and this player, Roman Vopat. He scored the first ever goal in uh, Frozen Fury history. And if memory serves me correctly, he had a Gordie Howe hat trick in that game. But regardless of what happened in that game... You're right, Dennis. He is a legend on KOTP. If you have never listened to the Roman Volpot episode of Kings of the Podcast, 
wow. I mean, like, get some yeah. coffee and, I don't know, some, some scones or some crackers or, or a, good <laughs> cup, a good slice of pie. Get something. Uh, you know, dedicate a good 30 minutes of your time and sit down and listen to Roman Volpot because to say that he was coming in hot would be an understatement I, uh, for sure. Now, DB, yeah. some people, you know, I get it. I get it, okay? Uh, they're not happy that Frozen Fury is happening sure, in Utah. Sure. It's just, I, I've seen it all online. I've seen some of the complaints, right? It's not Frozen Fury. It's not in Vegas. It's not against the Avalanche. Okay, fine, all of that's true. But Dennis, back to what you were saying earlier, you, you know, you're not opposed to change. Things have to change. Now, the yeah. Kings had uh, a series previously in, in Utah, in Salt Lake City, against the Vancouver Canucks, I believe it was. And they called it something like the Salt Lake Shootout yes. or whatever. And they've opted to move away from that name. I don't know if it's because, like, the name is just kind of, you know, not PC, not cool, mm-hmm. or if they wanted to, you know, um, revive the old fo- Frozen Fury branding and names or whatever. But, sure, it's not the Frozen Fury that everybody remembers because it's not at the MGM uh, Grand Garden Arena and you're not walking through the gauntlet yeah. and you're not playing blackjack with Froloff and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. But some interesting things here, DB. I, I want to ask you some questions. I want to see... If you remember, I know you're not really a preseason guy, yeah. so Frozen Free might not be your big thing, but I'm curious. Do you happen to know how many different teams the Kings have played at Frozen Fury? Mm, I would say four. Okay, so what, give, give me four. What do you think? Uh, Avalanche. Um, yes. Rangers. They did play the Rangers, actually, at the tail end of the series, yeah. yes. Rangers, because um, they, they played two different teams in that set. I think it was Colorado. Right? They did. They did. Okay. You're right. Look at you. Some preseason knowledge. Um, Anaheim? <laughs> they never played Anaheim. Here, here's a little interesting okay. tidbit. They were supposed to. They were scheduled to play Anaheim in 2004, but the lockout, lockout canceled that. And for reasons that have never been explained to me, they never Re-engaged. came back to Anaheim, right? Because the lockout eventually ended. Yeah. So, fine, you missed the 2004 edition. But there were many, many years in Vegas after that. They never went back to Anaheim again. So, Kings, Ducks, never happened at Frozen Fury. Scheduled to happen, never happened. I'll, I'll get one more guess and then I'll, I'll... Do you have any other teams? Yeah, I'll just... One more guess and then okay. I'll give it. I'll, I'll raise it. Sharks. They did play San Jose, uh, played them twice, if I remember correctly. And it was I think it was also the first time when they played uh, the two games over the same mm-hmm. weekend. It was the first time, if I remember correctly. Um, and then they also did play the Phoenix Coyotes okay. as well. So there's a little bit of, uh, of trivia for you. Do you know which Kings player holds the record for the most career points at Frozen Fury? Now, this should be should be a layup for you. Uh, Robitaille. No, Anjay Kopitar actually oh, Kop- uh, okay. scored more points than, than anybody else. Yes, scored more points than anybody else. Um, and a current member of the uh, – well, he was not a current member anymore, but there was a member of the L.A. Kings um, who had been to Vegas uh, as part of the Frozen Fury um, series, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. but he played on the opposite team. What kind of question? Like, Actually, this just trivia question can't be wrong because the answer would be Willie Mitchell, and that absolutely can't be right. So, no, I don't remember Willie Mitchell playing for one of the opposing teams. Of course, the uh, the most famous dancer oh, ever to, uh, to to participate. The most famous, you know, that one. <laughs> yes, that would be Jerry- Jeremy Roenick doing yeah, the dance. Exactly. You know? Maybe his highlight of King's career, John. 
to be frank. But <laughs> unfortunately, you would either have to go with that or game one in an LA Kings uniform yeah, where Dallas. he scored two goals yeah. against the Dallas Stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that little stretch of 10 days, if you think about JR, <laughs> those 10 days were awesome. Him dancing in Vegas, then right. scoring two goals in the very first game. There, I can honestly tell you, Dennis, uh, and I've been following this team now for about 30 years, I can tell you there has never been a single player, whether it's a prospect that was drafted, a free agent signing, a trade, or whatever, there has never been a single player, from my perspective, who was a greater disappointment mm-hmm. coming to the LA Kings than Jeremy Roenick. Jeremy Roenick, I've said this many times, my opinion, first ballot Hall of Fame yeah. player, over 500 goals, Agreed. was a dominant power forward when he played for Philadelphia, when he played for Chicago, etc. And, man, that was just – I mean, you thought when the L.A. Kings got Jeremy Roenick, you were like, yeah, all right, right they're, they're going right. out there. Yep. They're getting a big-name mm-hmm. guy. This is going to be great. Yeah, it was anything but great. It was – It was. Uh, it was very embarrassing. Uh, it was. It was not. It was not the Jr. that that we uh, that we, right, that we exactly. had been watching for the previous whatever ten or twelve years in the league. It's very disappointing. But those first ten, those first ten days, though, Jimmy, from from Frozen Fury to Dallas, you thought it was all going to work out and be and be fantastic. So it's funny though. I, I I can't think of another player of that stature that you would consider to be a bigger disappointment. You could maybe say that you were bummed out by Roman Czechmonic because you had high expectations for him. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's the same thing as Jr. because I would never even mention the Hall of Fame with Czech Monik. Right. You could maybe say the same thing for Dan Cloutier that you were disappointed. But again, I don't think that he's a Hall of Fame player by any stretch of the imagination. Right. So it doesn't rise to that level. The only other one that I could maybe make the argument, at least off the top of my head, maybe we'll have to ask Jim Fox or somebody that has a, a strong history of the club if he agrees or disagrees. The only other person that would come to mind would be Steve Duchesne because he was a former king. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a solid career outside of L.A. And so when he came to L.A., he signed a free agent contract. Dave Taylor was the GM. And uh, big money, like, it was like a four-year deal. And you were like, okay, you know, Steve mm-hmm. Duchesne came home to the Kings. It was so horrible that uh, they ended up buying him out, uh, I think, before the first season was even over. It was like that bad. What, um, what about – That's always a disappointment what, when you bring yeah. a former player home. What about the player we can't talk about in the podcast? Number 17. Kovalchuk? Yep. No, I, I – for me, I don't think I don't think it's the same level as Jr. because Jr. was still kind of like in his prime, and with Kovey, you didn't really know what you were getting. Like you, you just you heard reports of how he was in the KHL, and you know, um, except the I don't price think tag. That, I don't think that well, maybe I'm wrong. He paid him six. Well, but here's the thing: the price tag bothers a lot of people, but but really, the price tag shouldn't bother people because. Whether he was paid a million dollars or fifteen million dollars, it's not their money. It doesn't really yeah, matter, but, and it didn't impact the team mm-hmm. in any sort of a negative way from a cap perspective. But it didn't block them about, from doing other yeah, things. Yeah, but you're talking about the level of disappointment. You paid that pair six point two five million, yeah, per year for three years, and okay, gave, well, and you wound up buying them out in the first year after the first year. So I think that that would be, and just and the way it ended. So I think that you the expectations was not ten goals, right? At, at six two, you think first line player, 25-plus goals. So I think throw him in the mix. But since we can't talk about this player, you have to put a ban you're on right. him, so we're going to close that chapter. <laughs> well, you're right. There, there absolutely is disappointment there. There is. There is disappointment there. I, I just think that uh, for my money, in my opinion, as they like to say, IMO, um, he had been away from the league. Yeah, yeah. I get and it. So I don't right. think he had been front and center sure. in the same way that JR had. Uh, so... I think that while people might have been excited or put expectations on it and thought like, mm-hmm. wow, this is going to be great. This guy's going to come in and 
you know, he's going to he's going to be a sniper there on Kopitar's wing. There were expectations there to me. I don't know. It just wasn't the same sure. thing as Jr. Maybe it's just because of my own fascination and love affair right. for, you know, for real power forwards right. in the game. Um, that, that that maybe that's what it was. Sure. I, I'm not sure. Maybe it's my personal bias. I'm I'm using my uh, my own lens there. Um, Dennis, we've talked uh, many times about uh, outdoor games, which we just mentioned the Frozen Fury game there, and um, they're setting up for another nice outdoor game. Just to switch completely, switch gears here this season, playing at the baseball stadium. You and I, I think, are would agree that we like the games in the baseball stadiums mm-hmm. because they're more intimate. However, we do like the games more in the football style stadiums because it's a more natural sight line. So it's right. kind of like pick your poison almost. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. How, how do you feel about that game? The jerseys are out there. What do you think about them? Um, I don't know. Uh, well, thank God Kaprizov signed, so he'll be playing in that game. So I think, look, I, I, it, it's a back, it's a move back to normalcy, right, John? Like January, like outside, like Winter Classic is back, like with a big crowd, right? Whether they're masked or vaccinated or whatever the case may be, to me, that's the, again, the return to normalcy. And yeah, I went to Fenway Park um, for the Winter Classic between Philadelphia and Boston. I thought it was great. I was also at Wells Fargo for the Rangers and, and Flyers and at the stadium series for the Yankee, uh, for the Rangers and Islanders. Um, I, I agree with you, John. I think that the setting is better. It's, it, from a visual standpoint, baseball stadiums are better. Uh, but just from the in-stadium experience, I think football stadiums are better for the fans that are going to experience it as well. But I'm just looking forward to it. And Target Field's a nice field. I've never been there. It looks really cool. Uh, but it's not as distinctive as Fenway or Wrigley or some of the other, you know, or Dodger Stadium, obviously, where baseball stadiums go. But these teams, they everybody mm-hmm. needs a turn. So I have no problem with Minnesota doing that. And Minnesota-St. Louis is a good rivalry. So hopefully we'll get a good game and uh, we'll get some good sight lines at uh, Target Field. Yes, Target is one of the newer baseball stadiums, and on the smaller side, I think it's only like 42,000, so it is very intimate, which is uh, the opposite of the way that most of these stadiums are going these days when they're building, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger. But uh, as you get to the outdoor stadiums, or at least if you get to the stadiums for some of these bigger events, you have to think, and this ties back to now to Frozen Fury, the Kings are now going to be playing Vegas Mm -hmm. in this edition of Frozen Fury in Utah. And uh, there still is that talk, that hope, that whatever, that thought that the Kings and Vegas will hook up perhaps in a home-and-home outdoor setting here over the next couple years, utilizing the Roomba there in uh, in Vegas where the Raiders play. Have you seen that thing? It looks like a that's what it looks like a giant Roomba. And then you have SoFi, of course, here in Los Angeles. So um, you would have both of those. Uh, by the way, Dennis, today's music uh, we did not. I don't. I didn't even bother to try to draw a connection to Salt Lake City. Uh, I just having come back from Las Vegas, I still had Vegas on my mind, sure. and the Kings are playing Vegas in the game. So uh, today's music, you're getting a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of insight into what happened at Punk Rock Fantastic. Bowling, which is a music festival over the weekend. Uh, get some get some Plague Vendor today, get some Bronx as well, and uh, we'll check out the new track from GNR. But uh, Frozen Fury, Dennis, uh, they're playing the Vegas Golden Knights. This is kind of a pivotal game in the sense that. The Kings use, utilized the first two games to showcase some kids, yep. uh, you know, especially two of the junior players in Pinelli and Chromiak, who signed a three-year entry-level contract today. Now things that things are starting to turn a little bit, mm-hmm. and we're starting. We're going to get an opportunity to see some of the real. I'll call it the thirty 
uh, guys that are competing for these final 23 spots. Let's dig into that, Dennis, and talk about that in the third period. But coming up on the other side of the break, we have Dante Abercrombie, who was uh, recently involved uh, with the Phoenix Coyotes in their inclusion program and was part of their development camp. We'll talk all about that with him. And then in the third period, you and I will come back and we'll talk about the LA Kings roster and share some opinions about who we think should make the final 23 cut after the break. Welcome back, Kings of the Podcast, second period, and I'm excited today. We have a guest that uh, isn't somebody that normally falls onto the LA Kings radar, but uh, I want to have him on. This guy has a lot of jobs, first of all, uh, but we're going to get into all of that as well as his time recently with the Arizona Coyotes, and I'm going to butcher your name right out of the gate. So, uh, Dante, welcome to the program. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's got the U in the name. My mom uh, wanted to make my life interesting when I was born, so... It's D-U-A-N-T-E, but it's pronounced Dante. Yes. Okay. So, you know, I, look, I, I'm not I'm not really a fan of that, I have to tell you, because here's the thing. We have it tough enough trying to pronounce hockey players. They're coming from all over the world, and they're putting these little accents over different letters, you know, and then you threw the accent on at the end. So it's not even like over a letter. It's on at the very end. It's very confusing. Yeah, it's funny to watch everybody get stumped when they look at my first name. The last <laughs> name is the longest, but it's, it's pretty easy to say because everybody has clothes from Abercrombie and Fitch, but... You look at my first name, and it's just like, all right, I'm going to need some help with this one. Uh, well, let me go on the record right now and say, not everybody, because I'm proud to say I have never uh, purchased anything from that particular retailer, nor do I own any of their clothing or anything. So uh, not everybody well, has Well, see if I can make a call and send you something, maybe. <laughs> as long as it's black, because <laughs> long time, uh, and, and that was not a pun, by the way, but uh, anybody who listens to the program knows that I prefer to just drape myself from head to toe in all black clothing. Um, even my shoe, even my tennis shoes have black shoelaces. That's how much I like black but uh oh, that's pretty awesome. now look uh, I wanted to have you on the program it's been like several weeks almost a month now uh, trying to chase you down to get you going on this thing here uh, so I do appreciate you finding time to do this but I, I do want to just kind of lay the ground rules also and let you know that normally we have people on the program we're very selective in who comes on kings of the podcast because we don't just want to do like an interview and talk about like the power play and strategies and things like that we want to have some fun with our guests and so normally we bring people on that we have relationships with um i've never met you we don't have a relationship so i'm just gonna have to ask you to uh jump into the deep end here with me we're just gonna have to pretend like we're boys and just have a good time perfect this sounds good to me all right, so um, beyond the pronunciation thing, which I had an issue with, also, I mean, dude, come on, man. You're making us all look bad. You have three jobs. Some of us have enough of a hard time trying to hold down one job. Three different jobs, three different coaches, uh, coaching stints that you're doing. We're going to get into the Coyotes in a little bit, but uh, I want to talk about your background first. I think it's fascinating. I want to just sort of give people an opportunity to get to know who you are. Uh, the three things that you're involved with right now, one is at the college level, one is at a U16 level as well. Just tell us a little bit about your day-to-day life when you're you know, back home in the D.C. area. 
Yeah, so we're, we're honestly getting ready to start ramping up next week um, with Stevenson University. That's the NCAA team that I coach here in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Georgetown Prep is another uh, team that I, I coach and consult with. Uh, we get started in probably three weeks or so. They've already started with their pre-skates. And then the Washington Little Caps, I'm doing a, more of a development role this year. I've coached the U16 and U18 teams this year. Um, but just wanted to focus a little bit more on Stevenson. But my whole goal there with, with coaching three teams, it puts me on the bench with three different teams throughout the week. So as every other coach is only coaching one team per season, I'm coaching three. So I get to catch up as far as my coaching knowledge and handling players. Um, it's just it's just my way of honestly accelerating my, my growth. And when somebody says, man, I just love hockey, I eat, drink, sleep, breathe hockey, it's one thing to say it. I mean, you're out there actually living it. You, you don't have time to do anything else, do you, my man? I, I really don't. It, it's all hockey and family. That, that's pretty much it. We honestly just moved about an hour away from Washington, D.C., so I can do just that. Spend time with my family when I'm home, enjoy the mountains while we're out here, and then everything else is, is, is just hockey. Um, honestly, hockey gave me so much when I was younger. Um, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to give as much back to the sport as I possibly can. All right. We have so much to get into with you and so many different questions. Starting out, I think you started playing hockey when you were about six years old. I read the story. It's fantastic. You didn't even have money to play hockey. And, you know, now look where you are. We can get into that. But the timing of having you come on is just sort of really ironic. And it was we didn't we didn't plan it this way because we had been, you know, working on this for over a month now or about a month. But I feel like it's almost been like the high and the low related to the last 30 days. Tell me if you agree with that. Maybe I'm off base. I don't know. But from your perspective, has the last 30 days almost been like a high and a low period in the topic that we're trying to talk about here in the sense that you're invited to take part in the Coyotes development camp and and, and be part of that program and their inclusion and, you know, sort of broaden the whole black hockey, the color of hockey, you know, whatever, whatever the phrase is, the buzzword of the month. But then this week we have this nonsense going on over in the Ukraine. I don't even want to give it more press, but I feel like I really wouldn't be doing things right if I didn't ask you about it. What's your reaction when you see everything that's going on over there? Or do you kind of have an arm's length, you know, look at that and say, hey, man, that's not me. That's not my journey. And you're not really involved in it. Well, I've, I've experienced situations like that in my in my playing and also my coaching career. And I've had plenty of friends that have called and asked about, hey, Dante, I just had this happen. What do I do? Hey, Dante, my, my son or my daughter just experienced this on the ice this past weekend or around the rink this past weekend. What do I do? So I'm very in touch with the the racial moments that happen, not even just race. It's, it's just all types of diversity. Um, but m- my first reaction was, you know, it really just goes to show the the ignorance of the individual who was gesturing in the way that he was. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's sad that we still live in a world today where people are close are still as close minded as, as he clearly showed. But I, I immediately said, I need to reach out to Jalen. So I reached out to some of his former coaches, uh, found a way to get in touch with him, reached out to him, just gave him my, uh, my support and, and said, honestly, you know what, when, when people stoop to that level, that means you, you honestly have them. Like that's, that's the last thing a lot of people go to mm-hmm. is, 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 you know, attacking whatever diversity there may be in the sport. So just continue to do whatever it is that you're doing, um, playing well to get under their skin and honestly just skate away from it. But if you decided to stand up for yourself in that moment physically or verbally, then, you know, honestly, I can't tell you how to react. Mm-hmm. But I do know that the moment a person stoops to that level, that, that that's it. They don't have anything else after that. 
just skate away because it's not even worth it. You know what? It life is so much bigger than that one individual. And I think Jalen did a great job. Yeah, it's uh I mean, I don't want to certainly make it about me because it's not right. I'm I'm a middle aged white guy living in you know in Southern California, so I obviously can't relate to it at the level that you're talking about. But it is jarring when when this comes up in 2021, and maybe I'm a little just I don't want to say numb, but removed from all of it. I don't know. They always say that being in California, like you know, we're ahead of the curve, and it's different in Middle America or in the South or wherever. And you know, this obviously happened over in Eastern Europe, but like like. Black people are normal in in California. I mean, we we had Akil Thomas on the program before. The Kings just drafted Quentin Byfield. Like all of this, whether whatever it is, uh, whether it's a person of color, whether it's a, a gay person, whatever it is, like it's all just normal in California. So, is it as jarring to you still in twenty twenty one? I know that you live in uh, the DC area, uh, you know, and so you you have a lot of racial diversity there as well. But is it as jarring for you in twenty twenty one, or is it just like? par for the course at this point, man. You just, you've grown up with it. It's been a, a part of every, you know, league that you've been in or been around. Well, you, you really want to hope that humanity has taken those steps forward where you don't have to deal with situations like that. But just like training for a marathon, some people put in more work to move forward and some people kind of just show up to the race and, and do whatever it is that they've always been doing. And that's, that's kind of the way that I see race relations working right now. It, it's not easy to grow from our past. It's, it's tough. It takes a lot of work, but if you put in the work, you become a better person the day after and the day after and the week after. But if you continue to just, you know, say, you know what, this is who I am. I'm just going to continue to rest in, in what it is that I am. Then you're never really going to grow. And honestly, you're going to end up on an Island by yourself being as racist as you want to be. And everybody's going to continue to upset you and whatever, but it's, it's, you can see, especially in hockey, there's so many great individuals. Like you, you speak about Arizona, like Javier Gutierrez mm-hmm. brought us out there with Bill Armstrong, and they showed us nothing but world class. They allowed us to be not only there for for photo ops and all that other stuff, but we were truly a part of the coaching staff on a daily basis, a part of the Arizona Coyotes for our time out there. And and that's not a it, it's not something that I look upon lightly. Like I, I truly respect it, that opportunity. And I really respect those two individuals and everybody involved, the coaching staff, Bear, Jay Verity with the AHL program. Like it's, it, it's awesome what they did. They're showing that they're willing to put their neck out there. Cause I'm guaranteeing they're going to get some type of emails and calls of, you know, this isn't necessary. Here we go again with this whole black thing. Like I, I see it, I hear it, I read it all the time, but to be that bold in their in their vision for their organization, mm-hmm. that shows you that there really are some good people out there. So you may have this one guy over in Ukraine that feels the way he does, but there's a lot more people out there that don't and make this not only this sport, but this world a, a, a place that you want to be. Help our listeners become a little bit better. I, I loved what you just said a moment ago. Help our listeners. And maybe it's just one listener. I'd like to believe that the vast majority, 99% of our listeners, you know, uh, are, are more tolerant and more understanding and, and, and more intellectually developed uh, than some of these individuals. But if, if there's somebody out there that's listening right now, help them, help them, arm them, teach them something, give them some sort of a tool. How do they... 
how should they be thinking? How should they overcome this? You just mentioned, you know, like if their first thought when they saw that you were included in the Coyotes development camp was like what you said, if their first thought was, oh boy, here we go again, or, you know, oh great, he's just going to be that token guy that's going to come along for the photo op. Like, again, like you were mentioning, how do you help them understand what it really truly means versus what they think it means? Well, so we do this with the with the Washington Little Caps. So I've done it with all of my teams in the past, but we've definitely started doing this um, across the board with every team this year. I'm going around and I'm just talking with every every team, and I'm I'm letting them experience me. I'm letting them experience who I am and my background. Because what it allows it allows them to now intimately, tangibly understand who it is that's sitting across from them in the room. There is a black individual who has different backgrounds and experiences from who it is that you are. And I think that that's what honestly changes people's minds. I I always tell the story about a teammate that I had when I was in high school. I went to a predominantly white high school uh, prep school in the Washington, D.C. area, played played on the hockey team, the varsity team. And it wasn't until my senior year that I got a letter from one of my teammates that said, you know what, Dante, I hate to say it, but I was racist when I came to this school. And I'm not saying that I was burning crosses and wearing hoods, but I didn't trust individuals of color. I was raised to, to see that they were lazy and that they didn't work hard and they may steal from you every now and again. So you have to be on your P's and Q's like that. That's, wow. that's something that he was raised in. Um, but he said, honestly, experiencing you on a daily basis has changed my, my outlook on not only just black people, but everybody from a diverse background. And we're really, really good friends to this day. And that's why I'm so adamant about, just having the conversations that I have at the Washington Little Caps, it's not about the having somebody come and speak to you. Um, and this is what I tell the players, not having me sit in front of you and have a conversation and, and let you know about my experiences. That's one thing. It's the bigger thing is when you're in the rooms by yourself and it's you and your friends that grew up wearing diapers together and you, you know, you known each other forever. When he decides or she decides or they decide to crack a joke or say something that you know, isn't right having the the confidence to say, you know what, this is 2021. That may have been something that might've been joked about in the past. It might've been laughed at in the past, but we can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very hard conversation for people to have. And it's very, very uncomfortable. But the more of those conversations that you have, the, I honestly think the more um, comfortable you get with having them and the easier they, they are, uh, they become. Yeah, for sure. I, I have to tell you, I normally think of myself as a real hard ass. As you were describing that letter to me, I, I had tears in my eyes. I'm just thinking, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, but like, wow, what an impactful letter that must have been. And for you at what, 17 or 18 years old, also, you know, if you're a senior in high school, you probably didn't have the emotional capability to fully deal with that at that particular moment. But I, I'm, I'm ha- I have to believe it still had a tremendous impact on you. Were, were you, were you also a part partly angry at that by, by that admission by him to think like, Hey man, I never knew that that guy that I thought was my buddy. I never knew that he had those feelings about me. Were, were you partly irritated at all? Honestly, I haven't had that emotion um, since I read it, but I, that's exactly how I felt. I cried as I read it, but then there was a moment where I said, I can't believe that there was a time when I sat across or sat next to this individual in the locker room mm-hmm. and he had those feelings. Yeah. The, the first day we met, we shook hands, we smiled like, in the back of his head, that's the way he truly felt, or at least that's the way he had been conditioned to feel. And that was, 
you never know who's who, who's walking around with what type of um, I guess you say baggage, whether it's you know something bad that happened or something that they learned. You never know what's in somebody else's head, and honestly, to leave them with a better impression of of you and people that you represent on a daily basis, I think is, is the greatest thing you can do for any interaction you have with somebody. Yeah, we talked earlier about the highs and lows, right? The high of the Coyotes and the lows of this thing going on in the Ukraine. That letter is both as well. It's the highs and the lows. Like you said, it's like, oh, wow, this guy felt that way. But then it has to be so rewarding as well to think like, man, I, I had an impact on this guy. I changed him for the rest of his life. I opened up his eyes because of me. It's, like, it's a very personal thing. It's you. You did it. It was nobody else. You made an impact on him, and, and it sounds like you've been making impacts like that on other people. So, congratulations for that. Let's uh, let's dig into your background a little bit more. So, uh, at age six, I think you started playing hockey, and you were part of the Fort Dupont Club. And of course, uh, they're led by somebody who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he's been, I think, one of your mentors as well. Can you just maybe share a a, a couple stories or a, a couple tidbits about that? Yeah. So, my mom, um, obviously, I came from a single parent ha- uh, household. My dad was you know, locked up. I really, even until this day, I don't know what he was locked up for. I just know it had something to do with being black and in DC in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, the drug uh, epidemic was, was rampant. So I'm, I'm, you can connect the dots there why he was locked up. But my mom was, you know, she was different. She wanted to make sure that, that I experienced as much outside of the norm as possible. So I was in gymnastics class. I was in violin. I was in swimming and she also wanted me to learn how to skate. So she put me in a learn to skate program when I was five. Um, and then after one of my learn to skate lessons, I, I looked over and saw a hockey game on the same rink that I had just finished stumbling all over. And I said, Mom, I want to try that. And she said, definitely. So she went to the front desk and said, hey, can I sign them up for hockey? And in that rink, which is Fort DuPont, they had the Fort DuPont hockey, um, the Cannon, which is Neil Henderson's program. And as you say, he was just inducted into the, the Hockey Hall of Fame and well honestly like well overdue because he is not only a mentor of mine he's like a second father um there's two guys that i say second father he and graham townsend but neil henderson gave me everything he showed me honestly what it's like to be a man how to to walk through this life especially in a sport that traditionally hasn't been um seen as something that black people do and carry yourself with a ton of just confidence and charisma and honestly just respect for the opportunity. So I, I owe coach Neil Henderson, everything, but yeah, that's where I got my start when I was five and a half, six years old was the four DuPont Cannons and Neil Henderson's program. Yeah. And I, and in some of the reading I was doing uh, and some background on you before having you on, uh, you had mentioned at one point that your mom had said to you, like, we don't have enough money for you to do this. Like we can't do this. Um, how crushing, I, I'm just, I'm guessing it's pretty crushing to hear, right? Because when you're a kid, you don't think about money. You just think about like, hey, I want to do this, whatever it is. And that, that had to be like an early awakening to the challenges of just getting people out to play hockey. Right. And that's honestly one of the best parts about Fort DuPont's program. It's very subsidized. It, the cost is very low. So you're able to, to play the sport. You get your equipment paid for. You just show up and, and there you go. You can become a hockey player. And, and I was very insulated growing up. It was an all-black team. Um, but then probably three or four years into it, I got recognized by a couple of teams locally, one of them being the what were at that point in time, I believe were called the junior caps, but the Washington Little Caps practiced in the same rink and they wanted me to come over and play because they saw the talent that I had at that age. And my mom just thought, 
you know, this team is thousands of dollars and Fort DuPont is, you know, a couple hundred, if, <laughs> sure. if that, for the course of the season. Sure. Like, he's already playing hockey. Why does he need to go and pay that much money to go and play hockey? So, yeah, it, it came full circle, too. Like, a team that at one point in time I wasn't able to afford to play for, I ended up coaching, and now I'm in a development role, um, honestly impacting every single athlete that comes through that program. I, I just think that's that's so amazing. And and by the way, you're selling yourself a little bit short, by the way. Uh, in high school, you won a Mid-Atlantic Prep, Prep Hockey League Championship. So you uh, you were a pretty good player. That took you around the world as well. You played hockey in New Zealand. I'm always fascinated about these, you know, outposts around the world. When we think of hockey, we think, of course, of the superpowers of U.S. and Canada and Sweden and Finland and Russia and whatnot. But uh, you're over there in New Zealand playing professional hockey. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that all came from, I had a, a couple teammates, my team went in Washington, D.C. Here. I think we had five or six guys go D1, which, I mean, Washington, D.C. is not a hockey hotbed, and we hardly have that many players per year go Division One, and to have them all play for one high school team is is unheard of, and I was not one of them. But at one point in time, I said, you know, all my friends and, and teammates are out here doing this and doing that with the U.S. national team and playing for D1 college, why don't I give it a shot? Like, I, I, I still want to play hockey. So I started to train. I tried out for the Toledo Walleye one year, got cut. Next year, got cut. Next year, almost made the team. Um, and Coach Matucci said, Doctor, you got to go play overseas. So I went um, to Pat Bingham, who was also a, another mentor of mine. And he said the same thing, Doctor, you got to play overseas. You got to go to Australia. You got to go to New Zealand somewhere just to show that you can survive a season you don't have to put up great numbers just go and survive a season so I, when I tell you I got on a plane and I knew no one in New Zealand I'd only corresponded via email and I look back at it now and I'm like gosh how in the world did you do that <laughs> but it, it was one of those moments where you know what you only get a, a couple passions honestly some people only get one passion in their life and I was happy or lucky enough to find mine very early on and I said it'd be a disservice to to those who are still searching for their passion to have mine sitting right in front of me and me, me not try to actually, you know, achieve the highest heights that I possibly could as a player at that point in time. So yeah, I went forward in New Zealand, um, came back. That was the same time I got to skate with the caps during the lockout, which was a whole other stepping out on faith moment. Like it was, you know, it's, it, but back to the having uncomfortable conversations, like stepping out in those moments was very tough early on. It, it was hard family was fighting against it. I still have a voicemail on my phone right now that I still keep. And I feel like it was from a family member, but I couldn't really tell who it was that said, I can't believe you're still saying all this NHL bound stuff. You need to just go get a job. Um, like, who do you think you are? Like, it was very terse and I keep it because I just want to be reminded that I haven't always had the most support from the people closest to me when it comes to my hockey journey. But I think the, the more, you walk in whatever it is your passion is, people will slowly start to get on board, but they really just got to see that you're serious, especially when you're trying something that most people haven't done before. They're only against it because they have never seen somebody achieve it. They're only against it because they don't have the courage to do it themselves. Exactly. All right. So, uh, hey, man, I don't, I don't, I've never even met you, brother, but I can't wait to have a beer with you. So hurry up and get to Los Angeles. I'm all on board. Uh, if there's an NHL uh, coaching job that's available, you guys need to give this guy a call. Let me know. I'll, I'll forward you his digits. Um, I, I consider myself a bit of a prospect guru, but I have to be honest with you. I am not familiar with the FPHL. You played in the Federal Prospects Hockey League. That's quite a bit down the ladder, guy. 
Oh, it, 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 I won't even say it's down the ladder. It's still <laughs> on the ground before you even step up on the ladder. Okay, but good. again, like that's, that's a whole, like Graham Townsend, like my mentor, you know, first Jamaican born player in the NHL. He coached in the NHL under Ron Wilson for years in San Jose and Toronto. Um, you know, he's, you're talking about happenstance. I tried out for team Jamaica, reached out to my dad all of a sudden was like, Hey, you didn't give me much when I was a kid. Cause you weren't here at least give me some Jamaican blood. And he couldn't even give me that. <laughs> but, um, but I had already done the tryout and I had, uh, I met Graham Townsend there and he was like, Dante, like, I know you want to be a hockey player, but let me teach you how to be a coach. Let me teach you the business of hockey. So when you're done playing, you can truly, you know, continue to stay in the sport. Cause I can tell you're very passionate about it. And you know, that's, that's what I did. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's honestly been a, a whirlwind. But yeah, back to your thing about the Kings, like Samson is a buddy of mine. Samson Lee, who's the, one of the video coaches for the Kings, or if not the lead video coach, yeah, I actually owe him a visit. So I may be out there sooner than, than you think. All right. Well, you have to shoot me off a text message when that happens. Uh, we'll get together for a beer there in the South Bay. Now, look, I can't, I, I honestly appreciate your time. I, I could talk to you probably for another hour, but uh, I, I can't let you off the hook without talking a little bit about the Coyotes and the Bruins as well. We'll get to that in a second, but the Coyotes, just to, to bring everybody full circle, I probably didn't set this up properly at the beginning of the interview because I was just so excited to start talking with you, but uh, the Arizona Coyotes, they set up this coaching internship program, um, what they were claiming would be young, diverse hockey coaches, and they were allowing you guys to be involved Involved in the development camp. You were going to be embedded in the program. You guys were going to be on the bench. You guys were going to be in the meetings and stuff like that. Um, I, ha I have so many questions, so I'll just fire off a bunch of them and you can cherry pick the ones that you want. You know, what did you learn? Uh, when at any point did you speak up and share something that you felt was pretty impactful? Um, what did you really want to get out of it? And uh, you also were there with somebody else as well, uh, Nathaniel Brooks. D did you know him before? Have you guys bonded over this? I feel like it's kind of like if you didn't know him, it'd be like two guys who were, you know, in Inside the UFC that after you went five rounds in a fight you hug and then like you guys are bonded for life um, and then also I want to know who was the most random person that reached out to hopefully congratulate you after the you know press release went out to, and, and you weren't expecting to hear from that's a lot I just threw at you no that's perfectly fine um, I'll start with that last one so Spencer Carberry who was just recently hired in uh, Toronto as an assistant coach reached out. He's uh, He was the head coach in Hershey at the Hershey Bears. He's somebody that I've been in contact with for the past two years or so, just behind the scenes. But to start getting text messages from him, from Jim Montgomery, from individuals like that, that I've you know, loosely been in contact with was, okay, this is this is pretty big. Seth Affert was another one, somebody that I met at the national program who had reached out. John mm -hmm. Roblowski, um, who's in you guys' organization, is another one that reached out. So that, that was pretty cool. But um, going into it, my whole thing was I, I honestly didn't think that I would be exposed to too much hockey-wise mm -hmm. that I hadn't seen before. But the way they communicated amongst themselves and with the players was something that I was really interested in. And even more so than that, the pace at which they, they moved throughout the day. That, that was something that I wanted to internalize. So when I came back home, I could replicate that on my daily basis of, you know, going through clips, talking to players in, in, in exit interviews or, or just different meetings that you have on the ice, being prepared, being very precise in your, your wording, and then just moving on to the next point. Like that was something that I, I knew I wanted to gain, and I definitely did because Arizona did a great job of, of making sure we were fully immersed. I mean, top to bottom, it was, it was unreal. Um, but I do remember my first day 
we were going over uh, over the practice plan for that first day coming up, and we were just talking about you know just how the flow of the drill was going to go. And there was a moment in time where I felt as though we could have added a little bit of pressure or potentially changed the route a little bit just to, to mimic in game a little bit better. And I called the like just situational cues is something that I used. And I remember it was uh, Posse, um, you know, piped up and said, oh, I actually kind of like that situational cues. I was like, yeah, you know, because in this moment you want to throw snow and this and that. And he was like, throw snow. He's like, wait, wait, wait. You, just get, you got all these terms that I'm just writing down and I'm getting ready to start <laughs> using. Um, and honestly, I was like, well, that's probably pretty much it. Like everything else you guys have already <laughs> said. So I'm glad I got those two out of the way. But just being in that room was what I told Bill Armstrong was something that you just dream about because it's one thing that to want to be there or to think that you are ready, but to actually be in the room to experience what it is to be an NHL coach on a daily basis and to honestly feel like you're not out of place at all and that you bring something of, of benefit to the, to the organization was, was the most confidence-boosting thing I could have ever experienced. Well, what I just took from that you said there is that uh, before I get embedded somewhere, I'm going to need to tighten up my communication style a little bit. I need to be a little bit more on point with my words, a little more selective. That's what I took from that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. Like, you got to paint the picture as, as vividly as you possibly can. That's not actually something that I've been working with with the, the Bruins on. So tell me about that. Let's let's transition away just a little bit. And, and kudos to the Coyotes for, for including you and, and being involved in the program. And, it, and from everything I've read and even just listening to you talk about it today, it was an absolutely incredible experience. I'm sure you can't wait to do it again. But you also are, believe it or not, involved with another NHL club, which is the Boston Bruins. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing um, for the Bees. Yeah, it was a very wild uh, summer. Like I went through a, a, a long interview process which I don't want it to seem like I'm, I'm chasing, you know, opportunity after internship, after this, after that. It was, I put in for the, the Bruins, USA came through, I did the USA festival, and then I got contacted by the people from Arizona to come out to Arizona. So I was like, this is all happening, you know, out of nowhere. But um, the Bruins is a mentorship scouting program where we are pretty much junior scouts. And my whole reason, just like coaching three teams and trying to learn as much um, in, an, in as much of an accelerated fashion as possible, it's the same thing with the scouting. I'm trying to, to round out my hockey knowledge base, if, if for lack of a better word, um, just so I can understand how they communicate. Because scouts see the game different than coaches and, and sometimes even GMs. So what are you looking for? What are, what are you trying to identify as far as talent goes? How do you project as far as rosters, because when it comes to development, I want to be an NHL assistant coach. Um, and if I get the chance to be a head coach, then if it's the right opportunity, I'll go for it. But you have to develop as an assistant coach, especially in the AHL. And, and definitely if you're going to be in the East coast hockey league. And I think every NHL franchise could benefit from assistant coaches having true development um, backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So that that's honestly my main reason for doing the Boston Bruins mentorship program. And honestly, like I say, Graham, uh, Graham Townsend was, I think Cam Neely's teammate back in the day. He played for the Bruins and he's like, that's a world-class organization. Mm -hmm. So you're going to learn so much just as far as culture and how to respect the game from, from that organization. So that's when I was like, yeah, the moment Graham said, yes, I was like, all right, I'm in. All right. So let's, let's wrap up today then with just a, a non 
diversity type topic, just a regular everyday old hockey question. Uh, analytics, yep. of course, being such a buzzword over the last couple of years, as you are rounding out your hockey knowledge or your approach to the game from scouting, development, coaching, all that stuff we've been talking about, where does analytics fit into all of that? How, how, how much are you tied into, you know, analytics, using analytics, reading the data? Uh, are, you, are you more old school, old fashioned? You know, you're the eye test guy. Where do you fit into all of this? Uh, well, when it comes to analytics, I think it's, it's one of those things that kind of, you already have things that you, you think you see, and you can go to your analytics just to see if that's something that actually is happening. But I don't think that you should lean on analytics or only trust in analytics because hockey is played with individuals and not numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so just understanding that, yeah, it's great to have the stats. I think that it's awesome. I, I use them frequently, but honestly, that eye test is, is crucially important. Just really feeling a player, feeling a moment because the, the analytics don't tell you how the, the, you know, the player woke up that day, what was happening in their life, the effect that the crowd may have had, the, the physical stress you may be under from an injury or something like that. It's just numbers. So already kind of having a plan going into it, but honestly, like being open to being shown something through analytics is the way that I coach. Dante, we, uh, we had you slotted for 15 to 20 minutes today. We weren't even sure if we were going to be able to fill that. We just went a full 30 plus minutes with you and I could do another full hour. Uh, it's been fantastic to get to know you over the last 30 minutes. Hopefully you had a lot of fun on the program today. Oh, I had an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Dante, we're going to have to get you back on the show soon. So, uh, you know, hit me up, shoot me a text when you're coming to L.A., uh, and, and maybe we'll uh, we'll make it all work out. Best of luck to you and the little caps and everything else that you have going on right now. Uh, can't wait to continue to follow your journey and see where you go next. Big, big things are ahead for you, my friend. Appreciate that so much. All right, there you go. We'll be back after the break. We'll talk more about that and a little bit more about the L.A. Kings roster challenges during training camp. to the third period of Kings of the Podcast with DB and the Mayor. Welcome back, Kings of the Podcast, third period. And Dennis, what an absolutely yeah. fascinating conversation with Dante. Uh, I, I, I can't wait to have him back on the program again. Just uh, uh, very intelligent. His passion for hockey mm-hmm. speaks right through. And uh, just it was great to get to know him. Absolutely great get, John. And just, uh, you know, I applaud the Coyotes for putting this program together and bringing Dante and the other uh, gentlemen uh, uh, to their development camp. So it's a step in the right direction that needs to be built on. Yeah, and you know what I really appreciated that he talked about there? I mean, there were so many things, but specific to the Coyotes was the fact that he had kind of been thinking about, you know, what what is my level of involvement? Is it just going to be like a token invite, like a photo sure. op type thing? But that they were so open kimono about the whole thing, and they just really invited yeah. him to truly be embedded into the into the organization, and that he even ha- had the opportunity to have a voice and to share, which is great because 
the guy has experience. He was successful all the way going back to yes. you know his high school years. He won a championship as a high school player. He played overseas, as he talked about, in New Zealand or out of the country. You know, He played in some of those lower-level minor leagues, and he's been a coach at the younger level. And hell, even Robo sent him a text message and sent him a congratulations. So yeah. obviously he's well-respected within the coaching community, and I think the guy has a very, very bright future uh, in professional hockey, and I think we'll be hearing about his name for a long, long time. Speaking of people we'll be hearing their name for a long, long time, DB, another former guest of Kings of the Podcast – Steven Nelson. It was announced this yes. week that he's going to be yes. doing some broadcasts for the Chicago Blackhawks. Cannot wait. Uh, one of the premier, in my opinion, and DB, I think you share the same opinion. One of the premier play-by-play uh, men on the up, uh, you know, on on the uh, mm. up and up right now. This guy has a bright future in front of him. Can't wait to hear him call more games. So, congratulations to Steven Nelson and DB. Um, our old buddy Joey Z from the Ontario Reign, who's yes. been. Uh, spending time in the minor leagues as well. He's going to be filling in on the radio side and doing a couple of games, including on opening weekend for the Blackhawks DB. He's going to be calling two games there. And another former uh, Kings of the podcast guest, old friend of the show, Colin Frazier was chatting with him the other day and uh, they just keep piling on more work for Fraz. So, um, <laughs> hey, as long as he's not going to be the DJ, because we know he'll just want to play Nickelback the whole no, time. No, no, no. Yeah, um, of course. Uh, yeah, I'm, no. I'm all for Colin Frazier getting on the radio and the TV <laughs> and uh, providing his thoughts and his insight. Again, as long as he's not the DJ, we're, we're okay there. But, uh, DB, that's not the only radio news that's out there. Share, share with yeah. our listeners. Sure, sure. So uh, this Saturday, uh, we're bringing back uh, the hot stove with me, uh, Dave Pagnon, and Ron Payton. Um, August, uh, October 2nd. Uh, I think we'll wait the one week till the real season opener comes on to have you on, John. But um, I'm also happy to announce that uh, they're also bringing me back to be an occasional co-host with uh, Steve Coolius on the power play uh, from 3 to 6 Eastern. Um, so I'll be popping in and out. Usually, it's, it's The, the format usually Steve and either Marty Baron, uh, Shane O'Brien, or Michael Rupp, but players sometimes don't have availability. So They've asked me, they signed me on to do uh, occasionally uh, co-host the show as well as doing the discussion room, uh, definitely on Fridays uh, from 5 to 6 uh, Eastern, but also probably Mondays. Christopher Stig is not going to be uh, doing his thing this, uh, this year with the uh, uh, with uh, Sirius XM. So I'm going to be uh, hot stove every Saturday, and then you'll see me uh, hosting 3 to 6 Eastern uh, on occasion uh, with Steve Coolidge. All right. So, DB, as if I don't get enough of you uh, hearing you on the show here and seeing you and sitting yeah. next to you at the stapler, then also yeah. uh, on the Sirius XM airwaves, which will be fantastic. I uh, look forward to yeah. look forward to that. Now, on the hot stove, just to let you know, just if you're planning ahead here, you said the following yes. weekend. Uh, yeah, I will not be available. I'm going to be in Sacramento. I'm going to the Aftershock Festival because Metallica. This is outstanding. Oh, I don't really? know if you know this, but Metallica is playing no. Friday. And Sunday, they're playing two nights at this three-day music festival, and they're playing really? two different wow. sets. Yeah, it's great. So, okay. uh, you know, it's a great time to see Metallica anytime. But um, that festival, Aftershock, an incredible lineup this year. Not only do you get two shows from Metallica, but you also get uh, Rise oh. Against, Dropkick Murphys. You get Social Distortion. Yeah. Uh, you, oh. I mean, just the list goes on and on. It's a, it's a rancid. It's a fantastic uh, a weekend. So That's I'll be in Sacramento point. that weekend. Yeah. Well, that's a great point, John, because I think if you're attending that festival, you probably won't be available at like 9.30 a.m. Saturday morning. <laughs> probably It's probably not an optimal time for you that weekend, no. so we'll probably defer I'm, to the um, the following yes. weekend when we'll have, what, uh, first the first game in the books and then second game yes. uh, uh, being teed up. So I, 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 I know your schedule on Saturdays, John. It's, <laughs> it's tough enough to get you in the mornings, but I'm sorry if you're attending a festival in Sacramento. You will not be available on October 9th for Hot Stuff. 
crossing yes. you off the for list, you right? for you i will be available on a saturday morning just not that particular one but yeah the 15th, i got you, or, no that would be the that would be the 16th the, that would be 16th, ideal okay. because yeah. yeah the kings will have already played one okay. game and we can tee up the yeah. second game uh Sounds we can great. maybe even talk about what's going on with the anaheim ducks as well because i think their roster is rather interesting uh man trevor sure. zegris could be the one c in anaheim yeah pretty cool there mm-hmm. and uh they have a lot of kids that are working or looking to work into the lineup as well. He's not the only one. Uh, so I think there's a, a really interesting story that is developing and will be continuing to track in Anaheim uh, between the Ducks and the Kings. They're on a collision course, Dennis. It, it, it's coming. It's probably not going to yeah. happen this year. But, man, no. you fast forward three years, and these are two teams that really should be mm-hmm. in the thick of things, not only in the Pacific Division, but really in the Western Conference and in the NHL overall. Agreed. Let's talk more specifically about the Kings roster. The Kings made uh, some very important uh, sort of distinctions between their groups. Now, they started the training camp off with three groups, as they often do, because they're, you know, the the roster is bloated at the beginning of training Mm -hmm. camp. And then you start to sort of narrow things down. And uh, you have the American Hockey League opening up their training camps this coming Sunday, Sunday or Monday, I believe it is, which means that basically... All of those players, not all, but the majority of players that are expected to play in Ontario will be released from the L.A. Kings portion of training camp, and they will then divert to the Ontario Reign portion of camp. Some of those players are very obvious, guys like Kemp, Sutter, Burke, uh, you know, even Sparks, some of those names that are there. But then you have some prospects. They're bubble players. I don't want to call them on the fringe. They're bubble players, DB. Right. But this could be the year that they push and that they challenge. Guys like Fagamo, guys like Turcotte, Byfield mm-hmm. even. Now, I have all three of those guys scheduled to play uh, in, in, in Ontario, but we'll get into that. I, I wanted to just kind of break it down, starting at the very top, um, with the way that Todd lined things up the other day. Group A, you can kind of look at it and go, yeah, that's pretty close to what the opening mm-hmm. night roster right. is going to be. <laughs> even though on opening of training camp, he told us not to project the roster, we're going <laughs> to do it anyway. We'll do it um, anyway, of course. Come on. Well, I think it's a diversion tactic. I think he, I think he knows better, totally. and I think he knows that we know better. So, you know, that's why you have to read between the lines on, on what these guys are saying sometimes. Uh, the top line, as of right now, is Ardvitsen, Kopitar, and Brown, pretty much as we had penciled in earlier in the summer. What do you make of that line from what you've seen so far? It's only been camp. You haven't seen those guys play games yet uh, for the most part. But do, do you like the line? Do you like the idea of the line? Yeah, what I liked about it, and I saw it in practice, John, is that Victor Arvidsson, he shoots first and asks questions later. Like players, mm-hmm. other than maybe Artie, that, you know, that might be that type of player, Kobe's never really mm-hmm. played with that type of player, right? And, and so I think, and he's a disturber. He'll play on both wings. I, I think it, at least from what I've seen, I think that's a great get. You give him two picks for the guy, and he's a, he adds a component to the offense they haven't had. So I really like that combination. Uh, they have the flexibility to bring back I follow. Even, you know, even Kobe said that himself. So, But I, I do like this ad. I think if Victor Albertson's healthy, he's going to be a dangerous player on that line. Yeah, he is very tenacious. And I also liked hearing yeah. from some of the defensemen and some of his new teammates who were talking about what it was like to play against him. So they were already very familiar right. with him and they were excited to have him in the fold. And uh, look, yes, they can always go back to Ayafalo if needed, um, either to replace Art Vincent or to replace Brown on that line. But I'll say this, as far as I'm concerned, 
Don't talk to me about Dustin Brown's age when you talk about why is he on the top line. All you need to do is look back to last year. He led the team in goals yep. last year, so the guy has earned the right. I'm not even talking about earned the right over his 15-plus year career. Just look at what he did last year alone, and he has earned the sure. right to play there alongside Andre Kopitar. And, hey, 23 and 11 have a special chemistry, and you know there is there is a bromance of a different level that exists there. Uh, so <laughs> let's let those three guys sort of sort things out. And then I think what it also does is it takes a player like Alex Iafalo now, everybody at this point knows what his role is and what it's yeah. been, and it allows him to sort of help out potentially two new guys on the team in Dino mm-hmm. and Kachev. And we're going to keep talking about the pronunciation. It's not T. Kachev. I know that we, I've been saying it that way. I've been saying it incorrectly. Uh, so it's Kachev for now. It'll be something different next week. But whatever it is, sure. uh, Kachev, <laughs> Dino, and Ayafalo. That is such an interesting line to me, DB, and the main reason why it's interesting to me is that Todd seems rather insistent upon putting those two guys, Ayafalo and Kachev, on their off wings. Ayafalo has always been a left mm. wing, and now he's a right wing. Right. All of a sudden, it's an interesting dynamic, and I'm wondering how long they're going to carry this forward. What do you think about that line and, and the composition of it and, and, and the fact that it moves Kempe to the third line? Well, I think that, and I'll address the Kempe thing in a second, I think last year the reason the team finished 14 points behind is that they didn't have a uh, playoff spot is they didn't have a legitimate second line. And this has the makings of a legitimate second line. I mean, Kachev's the wild card, right, John? We don't know. He's he's really slight. He's not a big player, uh, but he's smart. I asked Todd about him. He says he's a quiet player, but quiet in a good way. He gets the spots. He has the he has the brain power to understand where to be on the ice to get opportunities. I follow and Deneau. It's going to be a faster skating line. Deneau's a very quick skater. He's a, you know, Selkie candidate every year. I like it. I, I mean, I like it on its face, but we've never seen him play game one in regular season. And the fact that it pushes Kempe down to the third line, that's not, a, that's not an invalidation of Kempe. It means that this team is going to be better and, and needs to be better offensively. We can talk about the defense all you want. Um, 27th in offense, it's got to be better. The fact that you have a scoring presence. And look, Kempe had a, had a solid season last year. So if you get him to the third line, who's ever going to be the pivot on that that center uh, on the third line, is going to have a legitimate winger with him. It's not going to be just empty shifts. That's what you can't afford to have. So I think on the face of it, it's a better offensive team in the middle six right now. Yeah, one of the other comments that Todd made about Kachev was the fact that he's been impressed with not only his first read, but second and third read uh, ability, mm-hmm. which is something that's very difficult yeah. for any young player breaking into the National Hockey League, let alone a player who's coming over from the KHL to be able to adapt sure. so quickly. So to, th- I agree. That is an interesting line on paper. I don't hate it on paper. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. But I'm really intrigued to see it in action. So I need to see more of it. Right. When you get to the third line and you have Kempe right now with Velarde and Anderson is most likely the third line. Um, you can you can argue whether Byfield should be the three C or whether it would be Velarde. And if you do plug Byfield in there, what do you do with Velarde? I think it's Velarde as the three C. I think Byfield will start the year in the American League just from an asset protection standpoint. And then when I start to think about, well, how do you put the third line together? Who would be best to play with Velarde? And if you go with Kempe, who you just said for the reasons that you said, it gives you a legitimate option. Then I start to think about who is the best fit to play with either or both of those players. Personally, I'd like to see Martin Furk have a you know, 10-game run with Velarde and see if they can recapture their magic. But if you're not willing to give Furk that opportunity, I think Elias Anderson probably is the best option because he's the most off, has the most offensive upside, perhaps. Maybe you could argue Trevor Moore. Uh, but paired with Kempe, the Kempe and Anderson thing, 
I kind of like that. So I am liking the idea of that line, Dennis. Yeah, I, I think you need to look. They need to have better performance from their wings. But I will say this: when you line up Kopitar and Deneau forty minutes a night, like you're going to be able to have puck possession and control play from the middle of the ice. Like the defense in the middle of the ice. Uh, if you get anything from your bottom two centers, that's fine. But you got, you're going to go knowing in that if I got to go shut down these the big time players on any team, not just Leon and Connor and Edmonton. I think people aren't. They're talking more about the lack of size on the blue line. I'm going, oh, wait a minute. I get that part, and even Todd admitted to it, and they're going to be more aggressive to try to defeat that. But when Kopitar and Deneau are on the ice for 40 minutes, 37 to 40 minutes a night, like that, that's going to be really good for the defense. So, yeah, so I think you can sacrifice having defense on the wing, John, and put the more gifted offensive players on the wings uh, because you do, again, as I mentioned, uh, ad nauseum, that the offense really needs to be better if they're going to compete for a postseason uh, spot. Now, things obviously get very interesting from there, Dennis, because uh, as, a, as well, in present time, if you will, uh, they have about seven players. You could actually say eight because Double uh, A was not included in the initial group yesterday due to an upper body injury. Mm-hmm. So we'll say eight players, which would be more Byfield, Wagner, Lemieux, Lazat, Grunstrom, Kapari in some form or fashion. Now, again, I take Byfield out of that group, and I think that he will start the year in the American League. I think Kapari will start the year in the American League as well. Mm-hmm. I think that Lemieux ends up making the roster, but really as a 13th or 14th forward because right. he brings Agreed. something unique that some of the others don't. So it, it starts to come into more focus there. So you have more, you have Lazat, you have Wagner, Grunstrom, you also have Double A. Uh, and how do you put that together? I think it does become pretty interesting. Personally, DB, I don't think you need Austin Wagner on the roster. I think he's kind of the odd man out that you can afford to put on waivers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Lazat, because he's a natural center, but maybe it's Lazat versus Moore because Moore can slide over and play center as well. So you could have a fourth line with Moore at center, like we saw him playing during mm-hmm. the World Championships for Team USA, right. with maybe double A and whoever you have over there, double A and Grunstrom, double A and Wagner, double A and Lemieux. Uh, you know, it could be any number of different players. What, what do you think of those fi- final, uh, you know, I, there's five roster spots, but how how would you right. put the fourth line together? Well, you're going to play a player who you paid two point seven million dollars, right? That that's, that's so I I don't know how Anthony C was not going to be playing unless he's injured, right? So I think that's that's where you start. I think that's one spot right there. They love more and they extended more, so I think more is going to play. I think the guys at risk are Grunstrom, maybe Lazat, depending on and maybe not at risk because as you mentioned. Q probably starts in the AHL, so that would give a spot for him. So I think that the guys that you would look at with respect to waivers would be Wagner, would be Grunstrom. Um, I think those two guys, because they're they're wingers, and there's a lot of wingers on this roster. So I think those are the two guys that I would look at. And I agree with you with them. You, they don't have a physical presence. I, I wouldn't call Dustin a physical presence anymore. You really have to have him be the more offensive player as opposed to the guy who's going to bash players. Uh, up front. So I think that's what we're looking at with the spec to waivers. It's going to be interesting, DB, because I've written a few articles on this and there are, I guess you could make the argument that there are 13 players vying for those four final roster spots, but really there's not even four final roster spots because if Kachev takes one of them now, you know, there's only three roster spots. And if, um, 
If Lemieux takes one of them, now you're only talking about two roster spots. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even mentioned the name Jared Anderson Dolan that much here. So you're talking about a number of guys. If Kachev and Lemieux make the roster, um, I already have double A penciled in to the roster, so he doesn't he doesn't count in that right. conversation. But maybe if it's if it's Lazat and Wagner, just as an argument, um, that means Grunstrom on waivers. That means Ferk on waivers. There's there's a number of dominoes that fall after you start to put those final pieces in place there. And I think that's really the intention, Dennis, of these final five preseason games. Um, that's what they're looking to sort out is which of these guys. And you have mm-hmm. to you have to look at it just on paper and say Kachev has the best opportunity of all of these guys to make the roster. They're giving him every opportunity possible, they playing are. him on the second line there along with Deneau. You know, it's his roster spot to lose. I think the other three are very much in question. You know, uh, you have Wagner competing. You have Grunstrom competing. You have Lazat competing. And these are guys that McClellan at this point should know pretty well because they've been in L.A. for quite some time. So that's the competitive environment that he's been talking about wanting to see where at the end of the day, he's going to have to him and GM Rob Blake are going to have to have some tough conversations with some guys that go on waivers uh, a week from this coming Monday. But the, those three players you mentioned were put on notes because they were left unprotected in expansion drafts. So there, there's, there was already risk that they weren't going to be with the organization. They were going to be in Seattle. So I think that, I think at that point they knew coming into this camp, John, like, I'm competing for a job. I don't have a roster spot. And it's going to come down to these games, so it's going to be intriguing. Yeah, look, you're not worried about the top line. The second line, I agree with you, there's going to be some discovery about that second line because it's been put together and they've never played together. But the true thing that you want to watch now that these games are going to be on, are going to be televised um, is, is the, the fourth line, not even the third line, because you kind of got a feeling of who the top nine on the team is going to be, right, John? So I think that you look at the performance of the players that we just talked about, I think the interesting part to watch in these games is going to be the fourth line and how these players perform. Unfortunately, Dennis, we we are paid to analyze and to to review and to commentate and things like that and to read into things. And uh, no matter what happens, we're going to try to deduce something from it and we might come away with the wrong conclusion. Things like, for example, if Wagner plays a lot, are they giving him an opportunity to play his way onto the roster? Or if Wagner doesn't play, is that really just because they know who he is and they already have a book on him and they're not worried about it? The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle of all of that. Um, but look, when, now let's just quickly get to the defense, and then we can talk Ontario Rain for a second as well, because I think it's uh, it's rather intriguing to look over that lineup. It's, it's a stacked lineup, Dennis. Um, and they have experience, at least a little bit of experience, coming into this year versus last year where it was all hope and promise on paper. Now guys like yeah. Kaliev and, and Turcotte at least have pro experience. Uh, defensively, it's it's kind of lining up the way that we expected. Anderson with Dowdy, Bjornfoot with Roy, Edler with Walker. If Edler starts putting up points, uh, they could potentially move him up and flip him with Bjornfoot, and you could see Edler play in some games with Roy. But uh, they did like that Bjornfoot-Roy pairing last year. So Edler mm-hmm. with Walker, there's your top six. The question really becomes who gets the seventh spot, Mata, Clegg, or Wolanin. And we did talk about that on a previous episode. Uh, but it looks like, at least based upon day one, the way that, uh, they split the groups up, that Clegg and Mata are the two players, as it probably should be, fighting for that seventh defensive spot. Where do you land so far? Or do you not have an opinion yet on Clegg or, or Mata for the seventh D? I would, because that I've just mentioned this, because of the lack of size on the on the blue line, yeah. I would go. I would lean towards Mata. I think that's what. And it's only certain matchups, Sean. You're going to play Vegas. You're not going to put. You know, you're not going to have Clegg as opposed to Mata. So I think that that's how I would lean. Plus the experience factor as well. Um, but you know, John, I think you and I agree on this. 
I would like to see Khalil Gug somehow get a shot. Maybe somebody, and you don't like to say this, but maybe somebody gets injured. I don't think the kids ever got a like legitimate, legitimate shot here. We know what Olimata's going to offer. He's a third-pair defenseman at this point in time. So I'd like to see. And, and Todd talks about activating the defense and, you know, how are they going to be better off the rush. And I put it to Todd about that because the team was not good off the rush last year. And he says they have to be more aggressive. So that 1-3-1, one, one, you know, that they would play last year and they'd sit back and be passive. You can't do that stuff and win in this league, John. You just can't. So if you're going to be more aggressive, the more aggressive player would be Kale Clay. So I think it depends on style, mm-hmm. depends on matchup of opponent. But I just I would lean towards Mata at the seven hole right now as opposed to Clay. Yeah, I would lean towards Clay, and uh, I would roll the dice personally, uh, especially after signing Chromiak. They are really up against it from a contract standpoint, and right. so yep. losing Oli Mata via waivers might not be the worst thing. Getting that contract off the books, they're only on the hook for fifty percent of it if they did have to send him down mm-hmm. to Ontario. So it's not like he's going down there at full book in Ontario. It would be a nice. Uh, veteran presence in Ontario as well, so they could utilize that. He is a veteran, although he still is a young guy, so he would be able to fit into the locker room there just fine. And if there was an injury situation, um, or if after you know, 10, 15 games they didn't like what they were seeing from Clegg, they could, in fact, pull mm-hmm. Mata back up from Ontario. So that's the direction that I would go, uh, but that doesn't always mean that's the direction that they would go. Of course, Quick and Peterson will be the goalies there, uh, Dennis. Yep. Looking on to Ontario... I do find it fascinating that Turcotte continues to be played at center because I firmly believe his best shot to make it to the NHL this season would be more as a wing than a center. And I liked what I saw from him on the left side as a winger in Ontario mm-hmm. last year. But right now, and maybe it's because uh, Byfield is up with the top group at this moment, but right now the uh, lines for Ontario are looking at uh, like Madden with Jod and Fagamo and then Kaliev with Turcotte and Ferk. Just to very quickly talk about Anderson Dolan, I want to make this point very clear, Dennis. To me, he is an NHL player. Uh, He should be in the National Hockey League. And I personally would take him over some of the other players they probably will keep to round out the NHL roster. I think he earned that spot last year. Mm -hmm. However, he is waiver exempt, and that's a good reason why he will probably start the year off. As crazy as it sounds, he will probably start the year off uh, in Ontario. It's been 90 seconds, and you haven't talked about Jordan Spence yet, John. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll get, believe me, I will get to it. Believe me, I, I will get to it when we get to the defense. I was just, just talking about the forwards so far. Um, look, Fagamo is making a push, too. Let's, let's, you know, he, he's the dark horse. He's the sleeper in all of this. I mean, if, if somehow Kachev doesn't make it, okay, you mm-hmm. can very easily reconfigure the, the Kings roster. You could move Kempe up to the second line. You could move Leah Anderson up to the second line. But that might also be just the window, just the crack in the door, whatever, just the opportunity that a guy like Sammy Fagamo needs to be able to make the roster uh, because he has shown the ability to be an offensive player here uh, through these couple of camps we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So I think he's the sleeper in all of this. And, and John, for me, it's not even the, the, the offensive tools that we know he has. I, I like his intensity. I think he's just more tense yeah. player. This yeah. year, he wasn't as passive as he was. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, a lot of these kids come in, you know, bright lights. It's Los Angeles, big names like Kopitar and Dowdy and Brown, and they defer. I, I just like mm-hmm. Sammy's tenacity in this camp and in, the, in those uh, rookie games that I saw. 
Yeah, for sure. He is he is definitely playing with a different level of of, of aggression uh, and competitiveness more so than, than maybe some of the other players. And yeah, having that first year under his belt of playing in North America, that's all behind sure. him now. Um, that second line is pretty lethal, though. If you just look at the way it's set up right now, I'm not sure it'll ultimately play out that way for Robo when the season opens. But Kaliev with Turcotte and Firk, man, I could watch that line all day long when you have uh, a sniper <laughs> on the left side and a sniper over on the right side. I just don't know if Turk's going to be able to get the puck to uh, to each of them enough because uh, I don't know who likes the puck more, Kaliev or Firk. Those guys love to just hammer those pucks home. It's a dead heat, John. I don't think you can't you can't pick a winner out of those two. <laughs> Now, defensively, you you said uh, you, you were tripping me there for not mentioning Jordan Spence. <laughs> and here's the thing, Dennis. I've been hyping this guy for a while. Uh, and, know. You know, when he was a prospect in the pipeline and tearing things up in the Quebec League, where which is probably the least, uh, you know, known league of the three junior leagues. Most people right. pay attention to the OHL or the WHL. And I'm sorry about that sure. to the Quebec leaguers out there. But uh, the Q doesn't get nearly the attention that the other two leagues do. But Jordan Spence, I mean, he's just over there. No big deal, man. He's just rookie of the year and then comes back the next year in his second season and he ends up being the defenseman of the year. So uh, he, he's have, had a very solid junior career and came in with a lot of expectations as a pro and he more than delivered in those rookie games and uh, even the other night playing for the LA Kings as well. So uh, as I tweeted out a few weeks ago, Buy stock in Jordan Spence because uh, it is definitely on the rise. There's no doubt about it. And he is set to get a tremendous amount of playing time in Ontario from what I hear. He will not be the seventh or eighth defenseman in Ontario, Dennis. Oh, no, absolutely not. He, he's earned that right, John. So let's, let's showcase him and get him his time and see where it takes him. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably, if I'm an Ontario Rain fan, I'm probably more excited this year about the defense than I am about the forwards because – while last year might have been the year of the forwards with all of these first-year pros in Byfield and Turcotte and Kaliev and Madden, et cetera, mm -hmm. defensively speaking, there was a, a, a lot of work to do over the summer. And sure. um, now when you look at what they're coming into camp with, the Ontario Reign coming into camp, there's a lot to like there. You have a second year of Jacob Mavari. You also have Sean Dersey, who was blossoming into his own. You have Grons, who's come over. Looks fantastic so far. You have Spence who's come over or come come from the queue, and he's looked fantastic. Uh, that goes along with some of the other players they already had there in Strand. They did sign Gaunts, who they had last year, but they signed him for some veteran presence under a PTO. We'll see if he makes the club. You figure that either Mata or Clegg uh, will come down if they pass through waivers. Well, Lannon's there. Phillips is there. A lot going on defensively. And then you get to the goaltenders, DB. There are still five goalies that are going to be in <laughs> camp with the Ontario Reign. I honestly don't even know what they're going to do. And every time I ask about mm -hmm. it, they tell me they have a plan, but nobody seems to tell me or be willing to share what the specific plan is. I, I size it up this way. Sparks and Vilalta are, 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 you know, the top two guys in Ontario. That mm -hmm. leaves you with three guys, which is Ingham, Perik, and Lethemon. And the latter is going to be going to the ECHL most likely, which leaves you with Ingham and Perik. And even if you send one of them to the ECHL, to the same team that Lethemon will be at, he's probably not going to get the playing time that he needs because you would want Ingham slash Perrick to get the majority of the starts. And even if he does go over there and get the majority of the starts, what happens to the other guy? And if they carry three goalies in Ontario, right? right even right. if that guy gets, even if that guy splits playing time with Volalta, you still have sparks that's hanging out in the background as the veteran, as the three G for the LA Kings, that if something was to happen up top, you need him to be fresh and you need him to be available. So there's a lot going on with the Ontario rain camp. And I think Dennis, uh, it's going to probably be lost because there still is going to be over the next week or 10 days, 
such a competitive atmosphere in Los Angeles, I think that the sub stories in Ontario might get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Well, John, also, I think, isn't the league, isn't there going to be a taxi squad? There might be an opportunity for a third goaltender in, in Los Angeles. So that, that might they help a little bit with the numbers. Excuse me, yeah, they haven't decided yeah. that yet. They ha- they've, they've toyed around with it. They've said that it's on the yeah. table. Um, if that was to happen, then sure, that kind of el- eliminates or alleviates a little bit of the problem. But mm-hmm. back to my point, though, Spark still has to play at some point. You can't just have him practice ready, yeah. right? I mean, he has, to, he has to get a couple games in here and there. I guess then you would pull one of the other kids up as the third goaltender and have him practice because it would be mostly be like an emergency goaltender, but then, then the development curve stops. So yeah, it's a, there's a quantity with respect to the number of solid goaltending prospects and players they have. If I'm John Robleski and Robo is coming on the program here in the next couple of weeks, if I'm Robo, I'm pretty excited though, Dennis, because I feel like I, at least I should say if I was Robo, I would feel like I have a much deeper roster uh, than I than I had last year in training camp, and mm-hmm. so I would feel like same thing that's happening in LA. I would feel that there are some there are some real competitions going on um, for roster spots, for playing time, which is important not only to win games in the AHL right. but also to showcase the talents of those players so that they are ready. Because DB, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It doesn't really matter who starts the year in Los Angeles because the the auditions. Um, the competitions, they don't end on October 14th on opening night. Those auditions right. are going to extend over the next couple of months because there of will course. be an opportunity for a couple of these players in the American League to be called up, let's call it, in January, in February. There will be opportunities. Mm-hmm. So the tryouts, the competition between those young players, Madden, Fagamo, Kaliev, Kapari, Byfield, et cetera, et cetera, Turcotte, whatever, those competitions – those are going to be going on throughout October, November, December. So uh, that's my sales pitch, also, Dennis. By the way, if you, uh, you know, get out to an Ontario <laughs> Rain game, so uh, I don't, I don't have a commission on tickets yet, but um, you know, get out there, buy some okay. tickets, get out to the Toyota Arena uh, for all of you listeners out there, because it's going to be a lot of fun to watch the Ontario Rain this year. It's going to be a great team. Hell, the majority of those players have never even been to Ontario DB. They're like you; they don't even know what the that's inside right. of the Toyota Arena looks like. It's like you and you and Robo are on even footing right now. You guys don't even know what Ontario looks like. So. Uh, get out there to the Inland Empire and uh, and check that out. DB, let's wrap the show up today with this. Call your shot. Let us know. Uh, the Kings are getting ready to play their next two preseason games. Frozen Fury is one of them in Utah, and then they'll be taking on the Vegas Golden Knights in Sin City itself. What are you looking for in these two games besides to see what it's going to be like for TNT to broadcast a game? That's going to be cool enough to see how they're going to present hockey, but... What are you looking for from the LA Kings? What are some of your your talking points going into the games tonight and tomorrow? I just think how they deal with the physicality of Vegas. I mean, I'm not sure who's going to play for Vegas at this point in time. I, I think that's what you want to look at, right? Because this is going to be a more talented team, a more skilled team. But Vegas is the – look, they're the 600-pound gorilla in the division. I expect them to win – clearly win the division. So it's, it's, it's a nice measuring stick here because, you know, the players that you know and the veterans – are going to want another measuring stick against Vegas, but the the, the, the players there, yeah, it, it's a it's a nice test for the players who are trying to make this team or have or like Kachet. like you get your real first dose playing Vegas, 
right? That that's what you're going to see. That's what you're going to see with Braden McNabb and you know and and uh, Marty and you know and Shea Theodore. So for me, I, I think that's what I look at. Can they handle the physicality? Now th- they're more the exception than the rule. Vegas, they not that's probably one of the, if not the most physical team in the league. But a nice test here in the middle of the preseason. That's what I'm looking for right now, John. Well, for me, I have two things I'm looking for uh, in these set of games. And the first one is Kachev, Kachu, bless you. It's all the same thing. It's Kachev. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know. I want to see in game action. I've seen yeah. enough in practice. I've seen enough in scrimmages. I want to see an actual physical NHL preseason game. And I want to see how he plays. And if I'm impressed by him to, enough to think that he warrants more playing time and more evaluation on that second line, along with Deneau and whoever they pair over there, most likely I follow. That's the first thing I'm looking for. And the second thing, whether it comes in game one or game two, because I don't think he'll play in both, Alex Edler. I want to know where Alex mm-hmm. Edler is at. He's kind of been lost in the conversation, and it's not the biggest story because the top four on D are pretty much set for Los Angeles. But I think Alex Edler could be an important component because of the size, also because of the potential to create some offense on the third pair with a Sean Walker and or on a second unit power play, even if he was able to sneak in there. Where is Alex Edler at this point in his career? We all know he's a veteran. He's the oldest player, I believe, on the team. So where is he at? How mm-hmm. are his legs on this coming off of this shortest summer in NHL history? Where is he at right now as he gears up for 82 games of the regular season? I'm curious about Alex Edler. So those are the two things I'm most interested in looking forward to, DB. Yeah, and it's precipitous decline in his offensive you know, output last season. Before we go, John, though, we played true and false uh, last episode. So now I've got some over-unders. From from the, uh, online AG. Okay, so three players they just list for the for LA, uh, and the first two are for points. Drew Doughty over the over under is forty nine and a half points. Oof, um, I'm going to take the under, and I'm going to say just barely because I'm going to peg him at mm. forty seven points. I would agree with you on that. The next one should be a relatively easy bet, and you can get this number. <laughs> I would probably run out and get it right now. Andre right. Kopitar. The over under is sixty two and a half points. Get out of town. That sweater no, can't yeah. be sixty two. Can't Dennis. Just, Dennis. John. Dennis. I double check. Let's, let's, yeah, come on. I'm, I, I'm gonna I take all the, the rent money. Where should bet him? Exactly. <laughs> I'm taking away all the rent money, and I'm going. Yeah, where can I go <laughs> somewhere online? I'm getting hold of Nick Alberga. He is the uh, he's, exactly. He's, he's our, the... our resident bookie. Let's get a hold of uh, Alberga and find out where we need to go put big money over under on yeah. Kobe. Did you just say sixty two points? Sixty two and a half. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, he won't even be within ten points of that. I'm going to take the over. I know. I'm going to take right. the over twice on that. Give me a break. I'm taking the over all day long. <laughs> Come on, and the next the next one's an interesting one, John. Cal Peterson okay. save percentage nine fifteen save percentage. Mm. That is really tough. That's um, a good line. Yeah, that's a that's good a good line. line. Yeah, because I I would have I would have probably gone nine fourteen to nine sixteen. So <laughs> um, I was literally right there. Um, yeah, it's right there. Over. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, and and context will be important here. I'm going to take the under, but more because okay. I want to set a realistic expectation, and that if he was to exceed, um, if he was to you know mm-hmm. outperform that, that's that. Yeah. yeah I, um, I'm sorry. I'm not going to take the under. I'm going to take the over because I'm going to I'm going to say it's probably going to be a little bit higher than nine fifteen. It'll probably be like nine eighteen is what I'm going to say. So if he comes in at nine eleven, 
then somebody can be super excited about it. Let's let's not put any more expectation on Cal Peterson that is already there because um, he's wearing the best absolute mask in the history of the LA Kings. So uh, <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna vault that into a into a great season. Damn, that is a really good number, Dennis. Whoever set the yeah, line on that's that, that's a good number. Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what are you gonna say, over or under? I, well, he he did put up nine twenty two seasons ago, so I would say I, I agree with you, John. I, I think uh, a point or two above nine fifteen. So I would lean towards the over, like a nine seventeen, not a nine twenty five. I agree with you; he's probably not there. Team have to be a lot better in front of him, but I I think he could beat nine fifteen at this point. Dennis, I I am so delusional. I'm punch drunk from the Kopitar number that I said he was going to have a higher save percentage, <laughs> and I was right the first time. It was going to be under, yeah, because he's he's not going to quite hit that number. So. Uh, man, that was, that was embarrassing. If, if, uh, if I had a bigger ego, we would edit that out and we would just do it the right way. But yes, just to clarify for everybody, I don't think he's going to have a 915 save percentage. It'll be, it'll be, let's say more like 911. Um, so he won't quite okay. hit the 915. The higher that number is, the better. So I was, I'm just still yes. punch drunk on that Kopitar number. DB. I, I absolutely, I cannot get over that Kopitar number. That is so I need to go look up his point totals like over the last five years. That is like mind-numbingly low. I don't. You gave him a new toy. You gave him a new winger in Arvidsson, and you think that that's where he's going to come in? That would be like twenty-one forty-one. You'd have you would lose with twenty-one forty-one. He's going to play yeah, the first I, from the power play. Like, yeah, no. I don't get those totals. I, if it's under John, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I don't get it either. I, I, there are going to be a lot of trades at the trade deadline, Dennis, if the number <laughs> if he can't hit that point total. Woo, that is uh, I would think, okay. what, well, what 80, 85, right? I think a point-a-game player. That's what yeah. I think. Yeah, I would have I would have gone with 85. Yeah, yeah, 80 to 85 is yeah. it's, it's, it's about right. That's yeah. fair, point-a-game. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that Kopi thinks yeah. he's going to probably do more, but uh, – I mean, I, I would I would conservatively say eighty to eighty five. I think that's the type of season that right. he's going to have. But not I don't 62. think I don't think he's going to. I don't think the number is going to be in the sixties, Dennis. Uh, that that I will. No, I agree. That I will uh, put big money on. So yes, I don't yeah. want to bet on the. Uh, I don't want to bet on the Dowdy one, and I don't want to bet on the yeah, uh, Peterson one. I really want to run for right. the Peterson one. But uh, yeah. ooh, the Kopitar one. Yes, I will. I will that's divest from my racehorse and I will move my money <laughs> and all of all of my uh, all of my crypto coins or whatever they are, <laughs> crypto money. I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, in into that. So yes, we'll get a hold of Alberga and we'll do that. DB, it's and been your a fantastic Dutch brother episode. stock of shape. What about your Dutch uh, brother? Well, you stock you told me that you told me I'm getting I'm getting one share of yeah, Dutch brothers for my birthday gonna, in I November. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm talk looking. to my broker today about that. Dennis, here's what I here's what I can't figure out either. I'm I'm kind of mad at myself and disappointed. Uh, we were in Arizona just two weeks ago, of course, yes. major Dutch Brothers territory. Didn't even get one, not even one stop at the Dutch Brothers. Then I was in Vegas oh. for four days for punk rock bowling. There are Dutch Brothers there. Didn't get a Dutch Brothers there either. So, man, something is wrong with me, Dennis. I'm not I'm not taking advantage of these opportunities to uh, to get some of this this Dutch Brothers. I, I think it was the balmy 117 degree weather. Yes. That, um... <laughs> yes. Oh, brisk! I'm sorry, it was brisk. The word used was brisk. I did use brisk, brisk. 117. Yes, point. It, it, the brisk 117 degree weather and Kopitar over under 62 and a half is set. It's yeah. kind of you have to re 
recalibrate from those two things. I do. I do. Uh, even though it was a brisk 117 outside, the ice den truly uh, held up to its name. It was an ice den. It was, uh, it was minus 117 in there. I think I could have been double fisted with some Dutch Brothers coffee and it still wouldn't have kept me warm. Uh, it's a week later, and I'm I'm just now starting to thaw out. I can now feel my pinky toes, Dennis. So exactly, yes. Um, we'll need some Dutch Brothers soon, uh, and some red vines yep. for longtime listeners as well. So there you go. Uh, that's another great edition of Kings of the Podcast. Thank you for to uh, Dante for stopping by as well. A fascinating chat in the second period. We have a bunch of guests lined up. We have Rob Blake coming soon, Todd McClellan, John Robleski, more Dennis Bernstein, and uh, more of me, John Hovind. We'll be back with more Kings of the Podcast in the days to come. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'm a